Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. This week, we've got interviews with executives from two of the hottest companies of the year. Later in the show, CEO Daniel Schreiber of Lemonade, a stock which more than doubled on its IPO in July. But up first, Zoom Video. In terms of daily meeting participants, this year's Zoom grew from 10 million to 300 million. Motley Fool senior analyst Bill Mann talked with Zoom's chief people officer, Lynn Oldham, about the company's incredible growth. I just wanted to start from the beginning because Zoom in 2020 has been one of the most fascinating, important companies in the country, perhaps the world. And it's been an incredibly unique working environment for all of us. Uh, what do you think in your role, what even is corporate culture in the year 2020? Mm, mm. That's a really, really good question. Uh, you know, culture is, is, is what you feel in the air, right? It's, it's um, I, I think the things that drew, drew me to Zoom, um, when I walked in the door of our lobby, and in every lobby we have across the world, we have two words in the wall. Um, and it says, we care. And that's the way it feels like everywhere you went, right? So I saw the words in the lobby and I've worked for a lot of companies that those words are a little less meaningful um, than they are at Zoom. I see it, you feel it in every interaction you have with employees, which is fantastic because that tells us all culture doesn't live in the walls of an office. It lives in your people, right? That, and that's, that's a critical thing that we all have to remember. I think it's going to be harder to make sure that remote employees and it, and it, and I hear that from my, my compatriots at different companies to ensure that they feel connected and, and as important these days. But I think if your culture is pervasive uh, the pandemic can't can't keep it down, right? You you've just gotta you've gotta keep doing what you've been doing and not let that let that fall by the wayside. I think, you know, surveys are we we've been doing surveys to find out what people are thinking, how they're feeling. Um, you know, we're being responsive to those. We have this great all hands. You've met Eric. Yeah. Um, every two weeks we have um, an all hands where people can get on and leave anonymous questions and we answer everything. Doesn't matter what it is, we answer it because transparency, I think is a big key to that we care. So we're, we're not hiding anything, we're, we're talking about all of it. And then finally, the, the thing we did culturally for our group is um, we saw that people were struggling, lots of meetings um, all day long, back to back, hardly a chance to go to the bathroom. Um, we did Wednesday, uh, no internal meetings. So no internal meetings Wednesday is our day to uh, get stuff done. I, I, I'm a little excited to hear you say, because it's fair, right? To say that people who work at Zoom have a little bit of Zoom fatigue. I think, you know, we were best equipped to do this better than most companies, right? So mm -hmm. on March 4th, Eric and team turned it on a dime. Yeah. Um, but meetings in general, you know, you got to examine your day and its makeup and, and whether you're getting the things done that you really want to get done. Um, and I think that's what we saw is that just 
we like seeing each other. We care about each other. So we're in a lot of meetings and some of them maybe aren't as necessary as others. So we're, we're learning how to parse through them um, in a bit better way. How has Zoom managed to scale and how have you managed to scale? If I think back to February and March, we, we, I was in firefighting mode, right? Because mm. you're right, in, in a couple of weeks' time, we were doing the numbers that, you know, we were expecting to do a, l- a little bit further in the future, not, not in the, that many, you know, that short of time period. So firefighting mode from everything from how do we um, get ourselves to, to the size we need, you know, to some of the privacy uh, things we were working on. And, mm-hmm. and all, I mean, that, there was a lot of work to be done in February, March, April, May. It continues. Um, but but it, most important was was making sure that we had the people because that's you know it, with that volume that we were doing you you need you needed help you just needed more arms legs um, and brains right mm-hmm. so the the shift over the year now is back on you know for me is back on strategic and and really what does the next year plus look like and and what is that future work for Zoom and and you know our our customers and how do we make sure that we can get there? That's that's so I see it. I mean, this year was ups downs sideways, but for sure um, from firefighting to strategic again. Yeah. What is the big work for you now? So obviously, you have added on hundreds of employees. Yes. Few of whom have set foot into the office, so yeah. they have been meeting and, and interacting with each other in the same way that you and I are interacting right now over Zoom. How do you go about getting them integrated in such an unbelievably dynamic environment as we've seen? It and you, and I think the word "unbelievably" is somewhat overused, particularly by me. It's one of my top five words, but I think in this case. It really is unbelievable. Yeah, sometimes I wake up and I don't, I don't know how we, how we got to where we are, but, but for sure, it's been a lot of um, sweat equity. I think the, uh, let, let me tell you, that's about forty percent of our workforce has not seen or stepped foot in a physical office at this point in time, um, and we're, you know, it starts all starts at the beginning, right? How do we recruit and making sure that we're we're speedy, but. In that speed, we do not want to compromise quality. That's pretty critical for us. It always has been, and it's even more so now. So we've um, instituted a a values interview where we're asking um, very deep questions about how folks, uh, and experiential questions around how folks feel around that we care value. We ask it in a bunch of different ways across the interview panel. Um, Then once you get here, We've got a whole onboarding um, set up for you that that really gets you from day one understanding and feeling like one you joined the company you thought you joined and two uh, giving you a sense of of how we all live that value. Um, so it's very experiential. We do a lot of breakout rooms. We don't talk about much at all actually about the products. We talk a lot about. Um, delivering happiness and joy to our delighting our customers. That's what we talk about for, for the day and through experiences that come with these people into the room. So it, it, you, it's a very visceral feeling that first day. Uh, and 
So between the interviewing and, and the onboarding, we're really trying hard to get everybody to feel like um, a Zoomie from, from, from minute one. So uh, on your LinkedIn page, you, 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 you set out as your goal that you're trying to deliver happiness to both your employees, the Zoomies, and to customers. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've met him, but we have spent a lot of time over the years with Laszlo Bach, who was the chief, he was the chief you people know. officer at Google. I, I imagine that he's someone who, uh, who you know or know of. And, and I love how he talks about employees at the organizations and the importance it is at the outset for both these employees and the end customers about finding and bringing the right people in, yeah. right? The identification from the outset. How do you go about doing that? Yeah, so, so I think there's a couple of things we're looking for in people who join Zoom. Um, we're looking for people who have lived or feel that value of care, however it shows up. I don't mean it always has to show up in a customer perspective, yeah. it can be community, it can be your family. It can be teammates in your last um, opportunity. So it's it's see, seeing how they demonstrate that. You the need an is, empathy gene, right? Exactly, like, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other is we're very logical thinkers. So our uh, way of doing things is what's the problem, what's the root cause, and what's the solution. If you bring a solution to the table first, that's not going to work. So mm. you have to be that kind of a thinker. Um, I think the other thing is we're looking for voracious learners. Eric um, instituted this benefit long before I got here, and, but I love it. It is um, we, we pay for uh, books, uh, yeah. subscriptions. We want people to read and learn and keep going. So somebody uh, who's, who's got a pension for that is, is someone who would do well here. And then I think finally, just somebody who would like, just wants to get after it. You know, when I say speed, we don't want to compromise quality. We are speedy. Um, we, 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 we can turn on a dime. Um, so I think that's, uh, those are the things we look for in people who, who really thrive here. Um, and we've been really lucky. We know what we, what we are and who we are, and we find it in people, which is fantastic. More after the break. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Here's more of Bill Mann's conversation with Zoom video executive Lynn Oldham. What are some of the things that you realized as as May moved into June, into July, as you're growing very quickly, as we're realizing that this is going to go on for a while, were there things that you suddenly needed to pivot and get into your tool chest to be able to uh, to operate most effectively during this period um, in time? Yeah, I think I think if I think about it. Bill, I think about it in sort of uh, three big things that any and every company should be doing. One is listening. So whether that's a survey, whether that's this little thing we did called connecting conversations where we put intact teams together to talk about how they were doing and not the work per se, but how they're doing. Um, we just did uh, bite-sized gratitude in the month of November. So we're, we're trying to get people talking together um, because we think listening is is mission critical um, in, in as we progress through and now the, the, the curve de deepens again. Um, 
I think the second thing is making sure that you're wherever your employees sit, wherever they sit. And now I know we're all remote, but mm-hmm. when, when it is time to, to, to potentially go back to a different situation to make sure that they feel a part of the company. So that bleeds into my third thing, which is around leaders. So at this point in time, we're building muscle in our leaders to ensure that they can be deliberate, um, that they have the ability to be empathetic, like we said earlier, right? Because that's really critical. Um, if you're, you're an empathetic leader, you're hearing, you're figuring out how to unite the workforce, you're trying to get the best out of your teams um, and making sure that they can, they can deliver on results. Uh, I think those are the things that I think about as we move through this um, are the essentials. I think a lot of people would probably describe thinking about Zoom as a cultural phenomenon this year as something that, that, that came onto scene. On the one hand, fairly reverential. Like if 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 it is it is lucky and yet unlucky that we're going through the pandemic at all. But if we'd gone through this five years ago, a lot of the tools that are in place now, and I think Zoom is at the top of that list, were not ready for us. But at the same time, there's been some psychological costs for people being isolated. So uh, you can you you can go with this question anywhere you want to go. But what would you or what you would your company say? What do you want things to look like where Zoom is most helpful in a, in a, in, a, in a society that's healthy as we come out of this pandemic? Yeah, no, I I, I think I think that's um, what we're thinking about all the time now. Bill, I think we want to ensure that, you know, companies that there's enhanced communication, um, collaboration, because those are the things that really, you know, make make companies come, right? Um, we're trying to really, whatever remote working trends that we can, you know, assist with. I think the idea is that given the world that has embraced Zoom technology, um, along with changes in behavior, we think these trends are going to continue in a post-COVID world. Um, we think the future of work is hybrid, regardless of um, where your users choose, you know, our users choose to work, Zoom is going to be there. Um, we're going to have exciting portfolio products um, to, in, to, you know, fit the work from anywhere um, world that we're going to experience. I think some of the things, if you were able to attend Zoomtopia, we saw something that I think is the coolest. It's called Smart Gallery. And basically, once we're back into an office setting, the, the office is equipped, the, the, the um, conference rooms are equipped with additional cameras so that when we're on a Zoom meeting, even if there are three people or four people in a conference room, we all show up this way rather than that picture of everybody sitting in a room and then one or two faces that are remote. Right. Um, and that's what I love about what's happening now is we're all the same size. We have equity, right? And I think that is what I want to preserve uh, of what ha- has happened through pandemic um, into the future. And this smart gallery is just such an awesome um, addition to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. beautiful. I'm sure at some point you have to pinch yourself for where you are and what you're doing. Because I think about where Zoom is and what you all 
you've literally saved lives this year. You think about you think about telemedicine. You know, my best friend in the world is a cardi is a cardiologist, and a year ago, none of his patients and none of his fellow doctors would have accepted the thought of having evaluating sessions through a Zoom you know through a Zoom call. Right, wouldn't have done it. Research has been done over Zoom. Medical appointments have done been done over Zoom. All of these assessments have, have been done over Zoom. What you what your company has meant to society over this last nine months has really been incredible. And I you know and I want you to hear it from you know from me. But it, you know, do you ever think about this? What you know what it is that that you all are doing? It, it, you you think about it all the time. It is. It is, it is almost a two-sided coin. It is the, it is the, the thing that keeps us going um, when we're not feeling like we want to keep going. And it's the thing that gives us the most joy about, um, about, about you know, just what we do every day. We have, um, Bill, a cool and inspiring stories chat um, in our chat tool that is just full from day one. People just keep putting things in there. And if you are down, you don't have, you know, you're like, it's just too much work, too many meetings. You go to that and you just get all jazzed up all over again. It's it got to be it breathtaking. Is, yeah, it is. It really is. Um, I'm hoping somebody takes it. I, I think we, you know, put it together in, in almost like a, what do you call that? Like a anthology of the year at some point. Yeah. But it's Fantastic. great. It's, yeah. I think that's, um, that's what keeps us going for sure. Well, here's the degree to which Zoom has meant to society. I actually did some work and I have figured out that 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 you are one of the few companies that is now a verb. And in the you know, in in putting together a spurious correlation portfolio, I was thinking of other companies that are also verbs. And it's not many. There's Uber, yeah. there's Uber. Google, yeah, there's FedEx, yeah, there's Xerox. You can tweet, you can use bubble wrap, both, both of which are, are, are verbs, but it's a pretty special place to be. It, it really is. Even when you're talking to people and they're talking about the other guy, they're saying they're Zooming. Up next, a conversation with Lemonade CEO, Daniel Schreiber. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Back to Motley Fool Money, I'm Chris Hill. On last week's show, Ron Gross said that outside of the ripple effects of the pandemic, his business headline for 2020 was the return of the blockbuster IPO. And by far, one of the biggest of the year was Lemonade, a tech company that is disrupting the insurance industry. The stock rose 140% on its first day of trading back in July. Recently, Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner and contributing analyst Asit Sharma talked with Lemonade CEO Daniel Shriver. Let's kick things off with Tom asking about the problems that Lemonade is trying to solve. So it's foundational to our lives. It's 
got a tremendous variety of entrants into the game that even by having a few percentage points of market share can become a fortune 100 business. And yet with those qualities, foundational, many entrants, huge potential. It's a category that very few people like as customers. It has very low, let's say net promoter scores or very low regard in the world. Probably you as a 13 year old weren't dreaming about being a salesman of insurance. Um, and, and, and I guess, um, we know, and I certainly from watching some of your great uh, presentations on YouTube, you know, we know some of that is the conflict that exists between the company and the individual when it comes to a claim. So it's very important, I think, for the understanding of all of our members to hear clearly from you how that claims process is different at Lemonade. What is the problem that Lemonade is addressing that I would say the, 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 clearly the data is showing like the younger demographic is buying and the older demographic has been working with these tall building insurance companies in the center of town, gives them comfort that they exist. But overall, they have some questions about how they're being treated as an individual and they don't like the process very much. Now Lemonade emerges, they hear about it. Maybe they're a member of Motley Fool Service. Now they've heard about it and they wonder, so, so what are they doing differently? What's the, what's the alignment that they're trying to create between their stakeholders that doesn't exist in this very large category that's a hundred plus, a couple hundred years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly something that's near and dear to our heart and we've given a lot of thought to. So myself and my co-founder, Shai Willinger, don't come from the world of insurance. We came to insurance after 20 years of entrepreneurship in the field of direct-to-consumer, digital, and, and tech products. And when we came to insurance, we were asking ourselves the exact question that you just asked me. You know, why is this product, which is so foundational, which at a mathematical level is a social good, it's about people pooling resources to help the weakest in the hour of need, that is almost a dictionary definition of a social good. Why is it so despised? I saw some survey saying it's distrusted even more than politicians in the US. Um, and quickly, we did a Google survey in the early days just asking you people to classify insurance as either social good or necessary evil. The overwhelming majority of Americans said necessary evil. And did another one asking them, do you believe that the insurance company is gonna pay your claims without putting you through a rigmarole? And the answer was no, overwhelmingly. So certainly insurance companies have um, exactly the kind of association that you um, were saying a minute ago. And then the, the question to us was why? And how could we do something differently? Um, I've heard you, Tom, quote um, Charlie Munger talking, talking about incentives um, and the idea that um, he says, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Um, and that was something that preoccupied us a lot, to, to quote somebody else, Ice-T, he says, yeah, <laughs> don't hate the player, hate the game. And that was really part of what animated our thinking early on, which is to say, I'm assuming that every person working at every insurance company has wonderful moral fiber. Mine is certainly no superior to theirs. So this isn't about picking good people in order to engender trust. It's about a system and about incentives. And I talk about the game, but I, I really do think in terms of game theory. And in fact, in founding the company, I reached out to a Nobel laureate in game theory and spent some time with him trying to think through the elements of the game. Um, and the problem with the insurance game is that it 
pits insurance companies against their customers. Certainly in the eye of the customer, this is true. We have the data to support that. And the reason is that insurance companies, one of the ways they make money is through underwriting profit, which basically means after I've paid the claims, how much money is left over, which means that if I don't pay your claim, I make more money and basically means we're fighting over the same coin. Now, maybe I'll zoom out a bit um, and broaden the point a little bit more, which is to say the following. It is such an obvious thing, it almost doesn't bear saying that insurance companies' results depend on how many claims they pay out. But there are actually three problems that ensue from that at a business model level. The first we're talking about now, which is the distrust that, that engenders. One of the founding team members at Lemonade is Professor Dan Ariely, one of the most preeminent behavioral scientists. And he wrote a book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. He spent 10 years studying what makes people honest and dishonest. And he concluded that if you set out to create a system with a stated aim of bringing out the worst in humanity, <laughs> it would look a lot like a modern insurance company that everything that his research said you should not do is manifest in spades in insurance companies. Asymmetry of information, I understand the policy you don't. Asymmetry of power, I have your money, you want to extract it from me. Um, a win-lose value proposition, if you get it, I don't. Zero sum, all, all these elements of his research said that that's not a good thing to do and fraud indeed is a, is a huge problem in insurance. So that's one problem. The second one at a, at a financial level is um, volatility of results. So one of the beautiful things about insurance companies is that they have highly predictable, highly recurring top lines. One of the problem, prob problematic things about insurance companies is that they have massively volatile bottom lines that literally fluctuate with the weather. Now, what were the wildfires like in California this year? What were the hurricanes like in Texas? Answer me those two and I'll tell you what the profitability of the insurance company was. And the third one, which is a corollary of that is they become capital intensive because if I've got these massive surprises waiting for me, I better put aside a chunk of change in order to take care of those rainy days. So you end up with a conflicted business model, highly unpredictable bottom lines and capital intensivity in order to contend with that volatility. So we set out to rethink all of that and we decided we're gonna try and create an insurance company where our results are at least at first blush, not so intimately connected with how many claims we pay out. And we do that through two ballasts that stabilize our business. And what we say to you as our customers are following, you'll pay us for insurance. Every dollar that you pay us, we're telling you right now, we're going to take a 25% fee out of that and we're going to keep it. That's going to pay for our salaries and for everything else. And come what may, we're going to take 25%. Now, we don't know how many claims are going to be this year. So... The remaining 75% may be enough to pay all the claims and there may be money left over or it may be inadequate and there may be insufficient money. We take care of that volatility with these two ballasts. One is um, reinsurance, which is that residual risk we pass on to reinsurance partners. And you can actually do that. You can trade in risk in insurance companies. So we take an element of our risk and we say beyond this, it's your risk and we pay a fee for that every year. And that means that if there's excess claims, the reinsurers pay the excess claims, not us. To you as a customer, it's entirely invisible. This is behind the scenes um, financial uh, work that we do with them. But it means that our books aren't hit if there are a lot of claims. And conversely, if there's money left over at the end of the year, we say, we're not going to keep it. We're going to give it to a charity. Hey, Tom, which charity is near and dear to your heart? And that really changes everything. 
it changes, first of all, the relationship between us because beforehand it was an adversarial relationship, a two-party system where you and me are fighting over the same coin. Now we've introduced a nonprofit into the room. It's a trilateral relationship where I don't make money by denying your claim because my fee is capped and fixed. And you might think twice before embellishing your claim because you're not hurting the nameless, faceless behemoth with whom you have a conflicted relationship. You're hurting your church or your kid's school or the soup kitchen you volunteer at or whatever is near and dear to your heart as a, as a give back. And that changes the whole nature of the relationship from being transactional to being much more meaningful. And it also takes care of the other things that we said in terms of volatility of bottom line results and turns us into a capital light insurance company, which is something of an oxymoron. Coming up, what is Lemonade like for the people actually using its service? The answer is next. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Here's more of our recent conversation with Lemonade CEO Daniel Schreiber, led by Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner. You mentioned, uh, well, you've now spoken about kind of the behind the scenes system that you all created. We're very big fans of Dan Ariely at the Motley Fool. And um, the, the, we'll, we'll dig a little bit in the system with some more challenging questions for the fun of it in the next segment. But I just wanted to end this segment kind of getting the backdrop. Of, of the business by hearing you express what happens on the front end for the users. So somebody who signs into Lemonade for the first time and is going to get pet insurance or renter's insurance, um, who are they on average out there in the world? Who's buying and what's the what's the difference in the experience that they have when they when they when they sign into Lemonade versus a traditional insurer? And this part of of our talk is something that everyone can experience for themselves. If nothing else, I'd love to get some sales out of this. So everybody should (laughs) take out their phone, download the app, and give it a try. Um, So yeah, we do renters insurance, homeowners insurance, condos, pet, and we're about to launch life insurance as well. And the user experience in all of those cases is um, a delightful chat with a chatbot. So you go to lemonade.com, you download the app, and you're talking to a bot called Maya. Um, She's the alter ego of a real person. Maya was one of our founding team members in the early days and, and um, runs a big chunk of our business today. Uh, but that's a day job. Her alter ego is busy selling insurance as, a, as an AI. So you chat to Maya, the median time to buy a policy at Lemonade is about 90 seconds. I read somewhere that the median time to buy a coffee at Starbucks is three minutes. So you're talking about, um, really, you can order the espresso, and while they're making it, you can enjoy your home. That's the kind of experience. And generally speaking, you'll find it a fun experience. It's no jargon, no insurance speak. Um, it's a playful, she's kind of impish, and she makes jokes, and it's just a delightful experience. So you buy insurance without any uh, trouble at all. I think the more striking thing is not so much how easy it is to buy insurance, but how easy it is to make a claim, because that's really where the gotchas come in. Um, and actually, it's the same thing. You do that by chatting to a bot. This time, the bot is called Jim, AI Jim, based on our chief claims officer by the same name. 
Um, and Jim will ask you a few questions, say, hey, Tom, what happened? And you'll say, oh, I was at Starbucks, actually. And I was getting a, an espresso and I turned around and my laptop was gone. But you'll do that by lifting, picking up your phone and talking into the app. So you just talk into the app, plain natural language, explain what happened. And in about a third of our claims, um, the bot will handle the entire process start to finish and will approve or if needs be to deny your claim without any human intervention. And we pay about a third of our claims in as little as three seconds, quite literally. So it's one of those wonderful things, and hopefully this will be a recurring theme that we'll come back to, but crushing costs while delighting consumers, because you do end up with a really fun experience, simple experience, easy experience. Um, so that is the, the front end experience. It's entirely digital. You can call and speak to a human if you want to, but people don't. 100% um, of our policies are sold through the bot. 97% of our claims are handled through the, the bot as well, although sometimes some of those will require human intervention on the back end as well. Many will not. If I may, just one afterthought, because I, I gave an incomplete answer to, to Tom. You asked me also not only about the front end, but about the customers. About 75% of our customers are under the age of 35. Um, I don't think that would be shocking. Um, we do have people of all ages, um, but since this is such a digital experience and an irreverent brand um, that has a, a certain appeal that skews young. And more striking, I think, is that 90% of our customers tell us that they're not switching from another insurance company, they're first-time buyers of insurance. And that is kind of shocking. Um, if you watch more than five minutes of TV, you'll know that the TV commercials bombard you with I switched and I saved messages. Um, I switched to Liberty Mutual and I saved 913, you know, all that kind of stuff. 15 minutes can save you 15%. And um, so the whole business model of insurance is predicated on, the, on this I switched, I saved. And at Lemonade, we're not actually playing that game. We're competing with non-consumption. We have become, I think, in terms of market share, probably the lead market share in terms of first-time buyers of insurance. And perhaps nothing is more predictive of ultimate market share than new, new market share. Where are the new customers who are joining the funnel? Where are they going? And they're going in, in droves, thankfully, to, to Lemonade. So we are seeing this skew of younger consumers, first-time buyers of insurance, not limited to them, but um, a, a big part of our business is predicated on capturing customers at a time that they're not really attractive to large insurance companies because our cost acquisition, our cost to serve, the digital experience just changes the whole economics in a pretty fundamental way, which allows us to offer insurance at about 50% the cost of a traditional insurance broker for these first-time buyers of insurance. And then so long as we delight them, they stay with us as they go through lifecycle events. Maybe we'll come back to that a bit later. One of the things that everyone is excited about is your commitment to charity. There is something great at the end of the day. If the company does well, it's got something left over in the kitty. You make a donation and I, who paid in my premiums, can select some of that uh, for charities of my choice. But what do you say to the skeptics who remember Etsy's early uh, stumbles? It's a great example. Another B Corp, a company that uh, everyone really loved in terms of melding a great business model with a sustainable bent, a commitment to its space of artisans. I remember so vividly that uh, the in very inspiring CEO, God forbid this should happen to you, Daniel, uh, Chad Dickerson eventually had to leave. And uh, Etsy has done enormously well since then. I think they would have succeeded anyway. What do you say to those who say, look, the, the commitment to charity 
is a distraction and in fact it may be harmful to your business model i don't i can't talk to your etsy example i, I don't haven't followed them closely enough to, to be able to do a compare and contrast but i think the most costly problem in insurance is distrust people estimate that 40 billion dollars a year goes on fraud in insurance which is staggering and stunning and it's not hackers from the ukraine it's people like you and me who consider ourselves law-abiding citizens and other aspects of our lives. And when it comes to insurance, something, apropos what Dan Ariely said, something about insurance triggers us and makes us feel it's okay to embellish claims, you know, to level the playing field. And it also means that it's a, it's a category with incredibly low loyalty. Most people can't even name their insurance company. So the brands don't matter, the insurance companies don't matter, perceived as a necessary evil. I mean, just think about it. If you're trying to change insurance and bring it back to being a social good and for people to have an emotional connection with a brand something's got to change and then you start asking yourself well what is it that needs to change and then i go back to the business model and the game theory and i think about what we're doing with charity as enlightened self-interest and i say to you um, and through you to to uh, our investors out there i'm not apologetical for our charity now, I would be if I thought I was being charitable at their expense. I would have a, I would have a, a problem with that. I don't think it's real charity to be charitable at somebody else. You know, to take your money and give it to charity is, is nothing admirable about that. But I think we've created a business model, and this was so important to Shai and I in founding the company, where we think this is a win-win-win. We think that we are solving a real problem that the industry suffers from, which is distrust, using game theory to restructure the business model so it becomes a trilateral relationship rather than a bilateral one, keeps you honest, keeps me honest, takes away temptation, and makes it more fun to work at Lemonade, makes it more meaningful to work at Lemonade, makes it more meaningful to have a, a relationship with Lemonade as a customer. And you start getting to a virtuous cycle of instead of distrust and tit for tat, you get to a place of pride and then word of mouth spreads and Tom, you asked about NPS. We've got NPS that you know is Apple and Tesla level, 70 to 80 percent, whereas the insurance sector struggles to get into positive territory. That's gonna do it for this week's Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week for our preview of 2021. So be safe on New Year's Eve.